Tonight's New Testament reading is from Acts 2, 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, we give you thanks for the word that you so generously give to us, the word that is our very life. And so we come now and we humble ourselves before you and acknowledge you as Lord. And Lord, we await for you to show up, to take these words, to apply them to our hearts, that we may be fed by you tonight. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This fall here at Grace Downtown, we have been going through a series called Being Renewed Day by Day. And so far, Glenn has been uh, talking about renewal in terms of renewing the mind, renewing the power, and so on. And tonight, we're going to talk about a renewed community. And my hope as we look at this text together is to see the hope that we have in Jesus, to be a renewed community that is attractively different right here in this city. A community that is intentionally and radically different from the idols of Washington. That it would raise questions for those who look and say, what's wrong with these people? Why do they live like that? But something is very attractive. I want to learn more. And maybe for some of you, you're here tonight because of that very reason. You have friends who loved you and prayed for you when you didn't know it, but you are here because of your interest, the questions, and the lingering doubts that you may have, and we're glad you're here. You know, people devote themselves to many things to one another, to family and friends, to a movement, a belief, or a cause. Politicians devote themselves to one idea, athletes to their sport, teachers to their students, and so on and so forth. And I believe this because when I see my two-year-old son devote himself to Caillou, I know that devotion is part and parcel of life. This guy, Daniel, he devotes 99% of his energy, all of his resource, to this guy, Caillou, who he has never met. Strangely, I I know that all of us, we're devoted when I see my, my son. In a recent documentary called Billions in Change, the founder of Five Hour Energy Drink, Minaj Bhargava, talked about changing the world. It's very ambitious, but he is dead set on this vision. And he is focusing on three areas. One, water purity. Two, energy availability. 
and three, health. And to this end, he has devoted 99% of his wealth. 99% of his wealth. And when we look at stories like that, we ask ourselves, why? Why would people devote so much of themselves and their resource to a cause, an idea, or a movement? The Bible says creation is a, uh, sorry, Bible says devotion is a creational design, meaning God designed us to express our passion and to utilize our gifts to make a difference. And that's why we begin the Bible with a garden, but end with a city. Progress is a good thing. But sin upended the creational pattern by making our devotion to things our ultimate devotion. And ever since then, our devotion to things have devoured us. And even as Christians who are in Christ, set on a different trajectory with a vision and the power of the Holy Spirit, we continue to struggle with this, don't we? Our devotion to God gets hijacked by responsibility and recreation. Faith really is a messy affair. How do we then make sense of the call, the unyielding command for us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? And the answer is in Jesus' hope to his devotion to us. You see, he's all in. Ever since the beginning of the world, he has committed himself to his people. And we saw that in his incarnation through 30 years of his life, through his suffering, death, and resurrection. But then he gave us the gift, the ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit who took residence in our hearts. And then he placed us in a community, a body called a church. And if that wasn't enough, he promised to give us every spiritual blessings in heavenly realms, everything we need for life and for godliness. On a practical level, how do we know this commitment? How do we sense it in our own hearts, in our everyday life? Well, the fact that we, despite our frequent struggles, want to live for God is a testimony to Christ's devotion to us. You see, he works hard for us even when we can't and when we won't. That has never stopped him from giving himself to us. And some of you, you're here tonight discouraged, feeling, that's me. I've hit a rough patch. I'm tired. And the whole thought of being renewed sounds great, but is it possible? Let me just say to you, Jesus has given his life for that very purpose. I don't know how or when, but I know it will happen. And perhaps even tonight, he wants to meet with you, and he's doing that very work. And so we as a church, in response to his grace, we need to go all in. No reservations, no holding back. We need to go all in and give ourselves to him and his kingdom cause. And this happens best in community, does it not? 
Christian life is meant to be done together. As Glenn said, if faith were left up to me, then I would be my own God, and I would live however I want. But God has given us not only his word, but community that challenges that very tendency. So that as we come, we reorient ourselves on the word of God, and we are sharpened and encouraged by one another in the body of Christ. An African proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. That means we need one another. We need one another to cheer us on, to encourage us when we feel defeated. And we need his grace to give us strength when we feel like we can't take another step. And as we look at the text that we've read in Acts chapter 2, we see at least three marks of a renewed community, a community that is brought together by the gospel. And so as we look into this text now, I want us to think about how we might and really dream together of how we might be this community, a community that is, One, centered on the gospel, centered on the gospel. The book of Acts recounts the story of the first century church, beginning with its birth at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, they began to testify to God's wonders in other languages. And this is significant for two reasons. First, Pentecost marked the beginning of a new age. Old Testament prophet Joel, looking ahead to the age to come, said in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, that God will one day pour out his spirit on all peoples. And we read that and we don't blink. But you have to understand how radically different that was for his Old Testament audience. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God was poured out on select individuals like kings, judges, and prophets. But here, God promised that in this new age that is coming, he will pour out his spirit on all peoples. Second, Pentecost marked the redemption of language. Redemption of language. In the account of Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, language was cursed and people scattered. But in Acts chapter 2, language is redeemed and people are brought together. The disciples begin to declare the wonders of God in various languages, and Peter preached his first sermon. Now, not too many preachers get such an amazing sermon introduction, the Pentecost. I mean, talk about an untouching grabber, right? You got people speaking in all kinds of languages, declaring the greatness of God and all that he has done. And here before Peter is a captive audience. They want to know more. By the way, this was just an excerpt. Okay, It's not a five-minute sermon. I know for sure Peter's sermon was 35 minutes long. Okay, I'm sure it was. And it had two points. It went something like this. Okay, The law justifies wrath. You and I, because of our failure to live up to the law, we deserve to receive God's wrath. But secondly, Peter says, 
Grace justifies mercy. God had mercy on us in the person of Christ. And the people respond, what shall we do? What shall we do? This is a response of faith. And you can sense the hunger in their response. The very people who just less than two months ago shouted, crucify him. And witness Pilate washing his hands and Jesus being crucified on the outskirts of the city. We're now asking Peter and the disciples, what shall we do? How shall we respond to this message and the person of God and the good work God has done in and through Jesus? You see, the gospel is the power of God to change lives. You see, we don't simply believe in the gospel because it meets our felt needs, per se. It certainly does. But the gospel goes much deeper and it changes the very orientation of our hearts. It's what Jonathan Edwards said. It gives us new affections. And many of you may remember the days before you were converted, laughing at the thought of going to church and taking Jesus seriously. But now here you are. You worship him. You want to live for him. You want to love him. This does not happen because you're a good or a spiritual person, but it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the gospel. And that's why the gospel is so attractively different from all other religions. It brings about true, genuine, fundamental change, not by guilt or fear, but by the power of the gospel working in our hearts. You see, grace, as we see, secures our joy. God has promised to not only love us, but he has adopted us and he has showered on us all the privileges of sonship. And that's why we can run to him regardless of where we have been or how well we're doing, we can run to the very throne of grace and find strength in our time of need. But he has also guaranteed our hope. Christ who came will return and he's going to fix everything. You see, we live in a very broken down home. Our pipes don't work. Our heater works half the time. Our dishwasher can't count on it. We live in a broken world. But Christ will return and he will make all things new. And grace guarantees that. And finally, grace supplies our power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is a power that is working, Paul says, mightily in our hearts so that we experience resurrection power daily. So we are renewed daily in our hearts. This is what grace does. I want to talk about two things that grace does in particular. Okay, first, grace, it enlivens us. It enlivens us. 
Gospel, as I said, makes us a new person, and everything that we do becomes worship to God. But more fundamentally, everything we do is backed up with a desire to worship God. Think about it. This is what the gospel does. We don't simply show up to work Monday morning, but work then becomes worship. And there's a desire in our hearts that fights the struggle of showing up to work Monday morning, dealing with our coworkers. And we look at that and we say, God, I want to worship you. I don't want to simply go through this week, but I want to worship you through this. And that's what the gospel does. See, orthodoxy fuels doxology, meaning our understanding of the gospel, it causes our hearts to explode in worship. You've been there before? Maybe you felt it right here as you heard the word of God preached. It cut to your heart. And you wanted to worship. The two songs we sing at the end wasn't enough. You could sing for hours. To your delight. That's what the gospel does. It enlivens us so that our understanding of God and all that he has done, it fuels our worship. And so we can look at Monday morning and say, God, I know it's tough, but God, I want to worship you. I want to worship you. And I love how Paul does this. You read through the New Testament epistles, and he's talking about the greatness of God and all that he has done. And it's as if he needs to put the pen down or whatever he was using at the moment. He needs to put it down for a second, and he explodes in worship. And after about 30 minutes of praising God, he comes back and picks up his pen and continues his epistle. My prayer is that you would experience that grace not only on Sundays, but every day. That your desire would be to worship. Grace not only enlivens us, but it redefines us. It redefines us. We're not our paycheck. We're not our degree. And some of us are very glad about that. We're not our report card. Students, we are his beloved sons and daughters. You see, no amount of career, education, accomplishment, or even relationship will give you a greater name or greater worth than the gospel that says you are his, his beloved. And by redefining us, the gospel frees us from the power that things have over us. That means we can love boldly, serve joyfully, and give generously. We are not tied to these things. This is the first thing that we see in the church, a renewed community. Second is the necessity of spiritual disciplines. It says, when they came together in verse 42, they basically practiced spiritual disciplines. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, some of us, 
We're uncomfortable when we talk about spiritual disciplines. We have this allergic reaction to things because we can sniff out anything that resembles salvation by works. But spiritual disciplines is not merit. It is love. It's an expression of our gratitude for what God has done. Remember what Jesus said? He said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Our allergic reaction is in part due to our faulty understanding of salvation. Salvation, hear me, is not only the forgiveness of sin, which would then relegate our spiritual disciplines, because we're forgiven. We don't need to do these things. But salvation is the restoration of humanity to become like Christ in his moral beauty. And that requires work. It requires prayer, scripture, reading, meditation, so on and so forth. Paul interestingly said in 1 Corinthians 15, I am who I am by the grace of God. He exalts God's grace. And as good reformers, we say amen to that. But in the very next verse, he says, but I worked harder than any other disciples. They go hand in hand. In fact, grace is what enables our work so that we go above and beyond what's required of the law. And that's why Jesus said, your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees because we have something they don't. They were motivated by reward. We're motivated by grace. And that's why we ought to do better as God's people. Dallas Willard, a pastor and scholar, defines or outlines spiritual disciplines in this helpful way. He says, there are inward disciplines such as meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. And then there are outward disciplines such as simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. And then corporate disciplines such as confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. Obviously, this is not a comprehensive list, but a helpful one. And here's what happens. As we begin to practice and engage in spiritual disciplines, we begin to, what Tim Keller said, experience our theology. Okay? We take these things that we know and believe and we apply to our hearts. It's a difference between knowing something, okay, just here, and knowing something It's a difference between knowing the power of God and experiencing the transforming power of God in our prayers. It's a difference between knowing the kindness of God and knowing the kindness of God as we serve the people God placed in our life. Spiritual discipline, let me say a couple things before we move on to our third point or to our next point here. It's not, it's not an equation. Okay, It's not prayer plus the Bible plus good cup of coffee equals, you know, this amount of change. It's not an equation, but I would say it's a recipe. You need these ingredients to grow. I want to just for a minute or two, uh, for the sake of time, Talk about a spiritual discipline we don't really talk much about in church, and that is 
fellowship, okay? It's one of the most distorted words in the Bible, and that's unfortunate because it has a rich connotation, okay? To put it succinctly, fellowship means our, our common participation in Christ and the sense of unity this entails, okay? Our common participation in Christ and the sense of unity this entails. In other words, fellowship is gospel friendship. Okay? Gospel friendship. Elder Bob Baldwin's going to talk about this in November, and I want to encourage you to attend because it's an important subject that I think we need to learn more about. Because we as a church, we've made much about marriage, and rightfully so. It is a precious gift God has given to us, but we have not celebrated the gift of friendship the way we ought to. Jesus said this, he said, greater love has no one other than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If anything, Jesus speaks to the deep intimacy between friends. Why? Because intimacy is more about a deep sense of connection with someone else and the giving of oneself to the other in love than anything else. And if that's what intimacy is, we ought to be doing intimacy in the church. We are now in Christ, and His Spirit binds us together. And the fruit of that unity should be deep and profound love we have for one another. You see, marriage has often been lifted up as the ultimate context where couples experience intimacy. And I would say, yes, it's a unique context, but it's not the only one. It's in the context of friendship. As we share our lives with one another, that we experience rich fellowship with one another, with one another in the body of Christ. Okay, lastly, the beauty of communion. I'm going to try to do this as fast as I can in like three minutes. Just kidding. It's not going to happen. Okay, in Acts 2, we find a community that is rich okay, in joy, generosity, and love. And quite frankly, the world could not get enough of them. And what started out as a small church exploded after this one sermon and became a multicultural church. God-fearing Jews from all over the world. But by the time you get to Acts 13, that church has evolved into a multi-everything church. You find Christians from Africa, Asia, Jews, and Gentiles, and from various social class coming together in the name of Christ to share life together. The key word here is together. For verses 44 and 46, it says they came together and they attended temple courts together, breaking bread and so on. Their togetherness was instinctive, Okay. Why? Because we were made for relationships. We're created to be in deep relationships in the body of Christ. Get this. God saw Adam in the pre-fall glory of Eden and said, it's not good. The pre-fall glory of Eden, he said, it's not good. It's as if creation itself was incomplete until community happened. What is community? I would say it's a place where you belong, where you're known, where you're loved, and where you're celebrated. It's almost like the sitcom Cheers. You guys remember that? Okay. 
Those younger folks are like, cheers, what is that? Okay, cheers, where everybody knows your name. But sin twists our desires for relationships, so we either avoid it or worship. If you avoid relationship, you deny your humanity. Remember, we're create for, created for this. If you idolize or worship relationship, you distort your humanity, and you basically become the sum total of your relationships. And it puts you in an awkward position because then you got to control people to get what you want. And you live in constant anxiety because, quite frankly, no one can control no one. So simply, we shouldn't avoid or idolize relationship. Rather, we should be grateful for relationships. Why? Because God uses community to grow us in holiness. If you're new to our church and everything we do is exciting, praise God. You're in the honeymoon stage, okay? But wait, just wait, because it gets better. It gets better. All the relational experts describe five stages of relationships this way. They say, first is the romance stage, where everything's just great. I love you. You love me. The world's a happy place. Second, the conflict stage or the power struggle stage. Here, you're focused on the difference and the flaws in others. Okay? Then you evolve to the stability stage, where romantic love matures and you learn to accept and respect one another in a deeper way. And then, after you achieve that, you enter commitment stage. Where it's no longer, I don't need you, but I choose you. And you experience love, belonging, fun, and freedom in a new way. And after that, if you're really lucky, then you achieve co-creation stage. Described as a team moving together out into the world, where relationship becomes a gift to the world. I read that and I thought, give me a break. <laughs> give me a break. Because next thing happens and you're back to stage one, right? I mean, in my family at least, it's like, oh great, we are God's gift to the world. And then, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can put up with you. And God has done this. He has, in his wisdom, put us in community with people who are different from us so that we grow through conflict resolution. You see, if you're, if you're just at the honeymoon stage, you're never going to mature. Your relationship is not going to be beautiful. You see, relationships like wine and kimchi, they get better over time. Okay? You got to let it sit. And that fermentation process, it may stink for a while, but at the end, it's good. Trust me, it's good. Okay? And so if you find yourself in a stage of life here at Grace where you're like, oh, I don't know if I could do this anymore. Look, God wants you there. Because that's when you begin to reach for the things that only God can give you. And his grace will take you beyond the boundaries of your ability to love and care for people. And that's the beauty of community through the ups and downs, through the friction that we experience, we see the beauty and the goodness of God. Let me end with this thought. I, I just want to, for a second, I know I'm out of time, but challenge those of you who feel, when you walk into Grace Downtown, you feel your minority status. 
You know what I mean? Like this congregation makes you aware of your race, your ethnicity, your age even, your class, your education, or the lack thereof. Let me talk to you. You are important in this church, and we need you. Your difference is an expression of God's creativity and a demonstration of his glory. We need you here. So don't just stand on the sidelines, watching from a distance, and then leaving right after communion. Yes, I went there. I said it, okay? Jump in. Come on, let's play this game together. Become a member. Why not? Serve in ministry teams. Lead these ministry teams. Lead a community group, the small groups in this church. And join us in what we want to do here in the city for God. Because we need you. You have a unique story that needs to be heard here. And we would be better off because of you. So please don't think you are a nuisance that we sort of tolerate on Sundays, okay? We need you here. So please join us. Let me just say this as we wrap up. As we think about the first century church and what it means to be a renewed community, after all that we talked about, let me challenge you, all of you, and say, devote yourself. Give yourself freely to this group. Because God has brought you here for a reason and a purpose. You're not an accident. And we will be better off because of you. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for Christ and his devotion to us. And Lord, we want to respond to your devotion by devoting ourselves to you. So, Lord, move us along. You, I don't know what that looks like for all the people here, but they do and you do. So, Lord, would you give them faith and courage to take that next step in Christ's name. Amen.